would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament, and if you're not sure exactly where it is, if you're looking in your Bible, if you turn kind of to the middle, you'll get to the Psalms, and then if you go to the left, uh, you'll eventually come to 1 and 2 Samuel. And we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 15 today. The passage is also printed for you in your bulletins. As you all looked at chapter 14 last week, you saw it end, and the question was, is it ending giving us a sense of these two men, a father and a son, David and Absalom, finally coming back together after having been alienated from one another? Uh, It almost sounds like that could be the case as chapter 14 ends. However, as we begin chapter 15, we see that indeed it's not the case, and David and Absalom are indeed at a place of odds with one another, and significantly so. So listen as I read to you chapter 15 of Second Samuel. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. When Absalom went to, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all of the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, 
Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Then David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by and the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this particular story that is in your word. Help us. Help us to see what you want us to see from it. Help us to learn what you want us to learn from it and cause us through the work of your Holy Spirit to be encouraged, to be equipped and to be challenged where we need to be challenged. Do this through the work of your spirit and because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I want you to think about the last time that you went on a road trip. It may have been a while. It may have been a while since the last time you took a trip and were on the highway. But think back to the last time you went on a long road trip. And think back uh, about how many different kinds of signs that you saw along the way. 
Uh, you see signs that tell you how fast you're allowed to go. Uh, you see signs that are at the exits that tell you uh, what restaurants and gas stations are available at that particular uh, exit. Uh, you see uh, signs that tell you about construction that's coming and why you need to be careful and how you need to be alert. You see signs uh, along the, the side of the road that are billboards that are telling you about various attractions that are in the area. And how you read the signs depends on what kind of signs they are. Some of them tell you laws that you must obey in order to not uh, be pulled over and to get a ticket. Some of the signs simply are giving you information. Some of the signs are telling you that there's danger around, that you need to be alert, that you need to be watching carefully. Some of the signs are simply telling you about opportunities that you have available to you. All of them give you information. All of them tell you various things, but there are different kinds of signs and they have to be read in their context. If you come across a billboard that tells you that you must exit now for fireworks or for uh, a time to explore the cave, that's a different kind of sign than a sign that is telling you about what the speed limit is. If you come across a sign that's telling you about construction that's in the area or a lane change that's coming up, that's a different kind of sign that tells you what kind of sandwich is coming up at the next exit. There are different kinds of signs and how you read them depends on the kind of sign that they are. Well, the Bible has lots of different kinds of writing in it. There are laws, there are commands, there's history, there are parables, there are, there's poetry, there are proverbs, there are letters, and there are, there are narrative sections or stories. And while all of it is true and all of it is authoritative for us, sometimes it's not as easy to know what we're supposed to take away from a particular passage. If it's, a, if it's a, a passage that contains the law of God or it's giving us a command or we're reading the imperatives, it's pretty easy to know what we're supposed to do or not do. But if we're reading poetry or narrative in the Bible, it may not be as easy to understand what God is trying to teach us. And we're studying 2 Samuel and it falls into that category of narrative. Second uh, Samuel is telling us the story about God's people during a very specific time, uh, time period in the Old Testament. There's always a danger when we read narrative in the Old Testament to make one of the human people in the story the hero. For example, David. But David is not meant to be the ultimate hero. When David is doing good things and right things, then he can be a model for us of what it looks like to be God's people and how we are to, to live and to act and to think. When David is doing wrong things, when David is sinning like what we've been seeing in the recent weeks, we're shown what not to do and what not to think and how not to act. And always, as we're reading Old Testament narrative, we should be looking for ways that in this case, David points us to a greater and ultimate king. The son of David, the, the greater and more perfect David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've been in a section of 2 Samuel over the last recent weeks where David has been giving us examples of what not to do. Of how not to live and how not to think. And in particular, we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks the consequences of David's sin against the Lord and Bathsheba and Uriah. We've been, we've been reading about a description of the dark days in David's life and in the life of the kingdom of Israel. And that's going to continue really until the end of the book. And yet, 
in the midst of even dark days, we also get these little glimpses of God's grace and how David responded rightly to God's grace, such as we'll see today in our passage. So as we look at this passage, I want us to be looking for ways that we can know how it is right to respond when we are dealing with the brokenness and fallenness and sin of the world. Whether it's our own sin or sin that is done against us or simply living in a world that is full of sin. How is it that we are to respond in the midst of incredibly difficult life circumstances and darkness? So let's look first and see what uh, the description of these dark days that David was experiencing. And then let's look and see how David responded and what we can learn from that. So first of all, the passage gives us another description of the dark days that David was experiencing. And we need to remind ourselves first that as we saw several weeks ago, what David is experiencing in these dark days is a consequence of his sin. Back in chapter 12, we read that David, uh, in chapter 11, David uh, 11 and 12 and 13, we saw David sinning against uh, Bathsheba and Uriah. And we read in chapter 12 that David was confronted by the prophet Nathan. He confessed his sins. He repented of his sins. And we read that the Lord forgave him of his sins. But then the Lord also told David in chapter 12 that there would be consequences to what he had done. There would be violence and sexual sin in his house. And it would be public. And in these years after the events with Bathsheba and Uriah, David was seeing the consequences of his sins coming to pass. And in particular, here in chapters 14 and 15, we're seeing the, 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 the result, the consequences of his sin between David and his son Absalom. They were already in conflict with one another. And as we come to chapter 15, we see the extent of this conflict. Absalom went out of his way and intentionally sought to undercut his father and the king. And he did that first by trying to act like the king himself. Did you see that in verse 1? We're told that he went and got himself a chariot and some horses and some men that paraded in front of him. And imagine what that scene looked like. This is, this is David acting like the king. Acting like he's the king, like he's the one who is in charge. And we see it again in verse 2 where he would get up early and he would go to the gate of the city where people would come and to bring their, uh, their, uh, their complaints and their, their issues that needed to be resolved. They would bring them to the king, to King David. That was one of his roles. But Absalom would get there early and he would make sure that he would greet the people coming to, to bring their grievances to the king and he would engage with them. He would explain to them that... Well, you have a great case. You have, you have every reason to think you're going to win this case. But, but David, David hasn't set things up in a way that's going to allow you to win your case. He, he, he is going to not have the process in place for you. So we see Absalom then inserting himself so that he would be the one. He tells them, I'm the one that could bring you justice. If, if I was just the king, if I was the king, then I would bring you justice. There would be equity in the land. We see Absalom ingratiating himself to the people. 
We not only see him trying to act like the king and, and do the things that the king would do, but, but we also see him directly and intentionally trying to cut David's feet out from underneath him. Even as we see that in verses 3 through 6. Again, he would tell him, you have a good case, but the king's not doing his job. But what if I was king? If I was king, I would provide justice. I would, I would get what you needed to have uh, gotten in your case. And we read at the end of verse 6 that as he was doing this, he was stealing the hearts of the people. Literally there, the Hebrew means that he was deceiving them, that he was, that he was duping the people. And I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 7, Absalom was at this work for four years. Week after week, month after month, year after year, Absalom was patiently scheming against his father and against the king. It gets worse. As we move into verses 7, seven and following, 7 through 17, we see that Absalom's scheming turns into outright treachery. Verses 7 through 9, we're told that Absalom came to the king and, and what was likely a lie told the king that he needed to go and fulfill a vow that he had made to the Lord. And so he needed to go to the town of Hebron. Now that was not, uh, that was not an accident that he picked Hebron. And it would have been very strategic for him to say that he needed to go to Hebron. Hebron was a significant town. It was where Absalom had been born. It's where David had first been crowned king. And it was a town of significant influence for all of Israel, but especially in Judah. And so he tells, uh, he tells his father, he tells the king as he starts to unleash his treacherous plan, I need to go, I need to leave and I need to go and fulfill my vow. And we have to wonder, did David suspect what was going on? I mean, the town chosen would have been something that would have got his attention. Why, why had Absalom waited for four years before fulfilling his vow? And even what David said to him as he sent him off, go in peace. It makes us wonder if maybe David suspected something was up. But whether he did or not, he didn't do anything about it. And so we read in verses 10 and following that the treacherous plan begins to be unleashed. And notice in verse 11, Absalom, again, tricked or duped or deceived 200 of David's advisors to come with them. They didn't know what was going on, but Absalom did a strategic thing by having them come with him. And the moment later when David would need his advisors, they wouldn't be there. Absalom would have them with himself. And then notice also in verse 12, Absalom went so far as to get one of David's closest advisors, one of David's friends even, Ahithophel, and turned him against David and to follow Absalom as well. Now that probably wouldn't have been too hard. You may remember that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather and would have known quite well what David had done. Well, as we, begin, we continue to see the passage unfolding in verses 13 through 17. We see David getting word of the treacherous plan that had been unleashed. And we see David's response and his, his first words, his first action is to do what? It's to retreat. It's to get out of Jerusalem. And we might think that that's a little hasty. We might think he's, he, he's moving too quickly to, to get out of the city. But remember that David would not have remembered or would not have known 
how real the threat was from Absalom. And even more than that, the text tells us that David was concerned for the city. He was concerned that the city would be ransacked, that, that at the, the, the sword would destroy the city. And so in order for the city to not have destruction and also the, the women and children that were a part of his household to not come to harm, David decides he's going to leave the city. So this is the description of the dark days that David was experiencing. They were dark indeed. But how did David respond? How did David respond in the midst of these incredible, dark and difficult circumstances? And what can we learn from it? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that David relied on faithful friends. If you look in verses 18 and following of chapter 15, we read that David basically decided to get all of his supporters and his family out and they paraded out of Jerusalem. And as they came to the edge of the city, we're told that they stopped and and David stayed there. And then they continued to parade past David. And verse 18 tells us that as all his servants passed by him, all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. And as they were passing by, David looks out and he sees this man named Ittai who was a Gittite. And David stopped him and he said, Ittai, why are you going with us? You're a foreigner. You haven't been in Israel that long. It's been a short period of time. You can go back. There's no harm that will come to you. Why would you follow us and become, with all of your people, become uh, exiles in the wilderness? And David tried to convince him. But we read that Ittai was faithful, that he wouldn't turn back, that he pledged himself to be faithful to David. Notice at the end of verse 22, uh, Ittai had his children with him, the young ones that were with him. He knew that they would be in harm's way. And yet Ittai said that whether through life or through death, David, you're my king. The Lord God Almighty is the Lord and I'm going to follow you. One commentator said that Ittai was an island of fidelity in a sea of treachery. And it's ironic, isn't it? Ittai, a foreigner, was more faithful than some of, his, some of the fellow Israelites and even the king's son. You can imagine, as he had this interaction with Ittai, how helpful and encouraging it must have been to David. He had the support of this faithful friend. That's one thing that we need to endure dark days. We need faithful friends who will be with us through whatever we're going through. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot wait to cultivate and develop those kinds of, uh, of brother and sister friendships and relationships until you need them. You can't wait till then. So the question is, what are you doing now to cultivate and develop godly, helpful Christian friendships? So that when you do go through the dark days and the difficult circumstances, those friends will be there to encourage you just as Ittai did for David. We see a second way that David responded here in these verses and perhaps the most important way in verses 24 
in following. Again, David is waiting at the edge of the town. The people are parading out of Jerusalem. And as David, we read in verses 24 and following, as David was watching the people leave Jerusalem, he not only saw Ittai and stopped and discussed with him, but he also saw these men Zadok and Abiathar, who were the priests, along with the Levites. They were coming at the end of the procession out of Jerusalem and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant with them. Now remember, the Ark of the Covenant was significant. It was a symbol of the Lord's presence among God's people. It resided in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. It was viewed as a strategic piece of furniture in the life of Israel. So the people must have been completely surprised when David saw the ark at the end of the processional and he told Zadok and Abiathar to do what with it? Take it back to the city of Jerusalem. Why did he do that? It's because David knew that it was more important to trust the Lord that the ark pointed to than to have the ark itself. It's better to trust in the reality that the sign points us to than the sign itself. And David's words here in verses 25 and 26 are both profound and incredibly challenging for us. Look at what he says uh, about uh, trusting the Lord. We read in verse 25, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord... He will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Those are profound words. Those are challenging words. David, in essence, was saying, we don't need the ark. We will simply trust in the Lord The Lord will protect us and preserve us and return us if that's His will. And if we find favor in the eyes of the Lord, He's going to bring us back and return us to this city. But if we don't, that's okay too. We will trust the Lord no matter what He does. Essentially what David is confessing is that God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is at work. God is accomplishing His will. And His will is perfect. And it is good. And if it's His will that we are to be kept safe and brought back into the city of Jerusalem, then we know that the Lord will accomplish His will. But if that's not His will, He knows what is best. He is in control and we will rest in his perfect and good plan. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what biblical, godly, mature faith looks like. It doesn't matter if we experience challenges that are much smaller than what David had to deal with or even challenges that rise to the level of what David experienced. Our response should be the same. We are to trust the Lord to bring us through whatever challenges we face. Not playing games to try to coerce the Lord or or to try to convince the Lord, but trusting Him to be at work. Knowing that He will accomplish His perfect will and that we would rest in that perfect will and find our contentment in it. 
And that's true even if we don't like what the Lord is doing. Whatever the Lord ordains is right and good. So I will trust Him and I will follow Him. This is what biblical, godly faith looks like. I want you also to notice that although David was trusting the Lord with this kind of faith, it didn't prevent him from taking actions. Did you notice that? He, he told Zadok and Abiathar to go back to Jerusalem so that they could be his eyes and ears. And in essence, he is strategically sending these men back into Jerusalem so that they can be his moles. And we read it later in verses 32 through the end of the chapter that David sent another one of his friends, Hushai, back to Jerusalem so that he could stay connected to Absalom and then undermine the counsel that Ahithophel would give to Absalom. David was trusting in the will of the Lord, but he was also taking action to be strategic. He was making plans. He was doing what he could to try to bring resolution to the situation. And that doesn't mean that he wasn't trusting the Lord. Trusting in God's sovereign plan and God's work freed David up to do what he could and then to rest in it. One commentator put it this way. Complete submission to God's sovereignty permits one to use their head and to think, but without idolatry, without anxiety, and without the need to try to be God. There is liberty and relief and energy in living this way. Again, David is a good model for us in this. We are to trust the Lord's sovereignty. We are to trust the Lord's good plan, but that doesn't mean that we simply be inactive as a result. The Lord often uses our efforts to accomplish His will and His purposes. And so in the midst of incredibly difficult life circumstances, it's not wrong for us to do what we can to find peace and to bring resolution. But in all of it, we must trust and accept the Lord's plan as what is right and good and best for us. And in the hardest circumstances of our life, sometimes it's hard to do both of those at the same time. So again, it's important for us to have God's people around us who can help us and guide us and direct us. There's a third thing here that David does as he responds to the incredible dark days that he's experiencing. We see him in verses 30 through the end of the chapter both praying to the Lord and then looking for the Lord's answer to that prayer in God's providence. You see what happened here in the the final part of the passage. David left the city. We're told he, he crossed the Kidron Valley. And then he went up a large hill that's just outside the city of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. And it was there as he was uh, going to the summit of the Mount of Olives that he was told that his closest advisor, one of his friends, Ahithophel, had betrayed him and was now in alliance with Absalom. You can imagine David must have been devastated. So what did he do? What did he do when he heard that news? Well, what does it say at the end of verse 31? He prayed. He heard this devastating, difficult news and immediately he prayed to the Lord. He prayed and asked for the Lord to turn the counsel of this this one who had betrayed him into foolishness for Absalom. And notice, almost immediately the Lord answered David's prayer. 
We read that David's friend, Hushai, came up the Mount of Olives to meet him. Hushai would end up being the way that the Lord was answering David's prayer, that Ahithophel's uh, counsel would be confounded. It was through Hushai that the Lord would answer that prayer, although it was not an immediate answer. It wasn't a quick fix. And as we get to chapter 17, we're going to see that God answered it even in a different way than what David had asked. But nevertheless, David prayed. And then what did he see? He saw God's providence in answering his prayer. This is another good model for us. In the midst of dark days and difficult circumstances, we ought to be praying to the Lord. And then we ought to ask the Lord to be at work. And then we ought to look for how the Lord is at work in our midst. Looking for God's providence. Looking for the answers to our prayers. It may not be immediate. It may not be exactly what we ask for. But looking for how God is at work. That's part of how we endure difficult times. It's how we deal with difficult circumstances. It's how we have our faith and our trust strengthened as we see God at work in our midst. How often is it that we pray about various things and then don't think about it? Don't look. Don't look for God to be at work. Don't look for His providence. Or how often is it that we pray for other people but never check back with them to see how God has been at work in answering those prayers? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is one of the ways that the Lord helps us in dark and difficult times. That we would see how He's at work. See His providence at work in our lives. Now, there's one last way that I want us to see here in the passage uh, something that helps us to endure dark days and difficult circumstances. But this, this fourth and last thing is not something that David necessarily did knowingly or intentionally. But because we live on this side of the cross, we have the privilege of seeing this fourth thing. And it is this. David ended up foreshadowing for us the greater king who would also be rejected by his people but would be victorious. It was about a thousand years after this event took place. After David was standing at the top of the Mount of Olives that another king would follow in David's footsteps. Jesus, on the night on which he was betrayed, we are told he left the city of Jerusalem, he crossed the Kidron Valley, and then he went up the Mount of Olives. I've included the gospel passages that record the events in your outline if you want to look at it later this afternoon. We're reminded as we, as we see what David is doing now, we on this side of the cross are reminded that yes, David had been betrayed, he had been threatened, he had, been, he had become a wanted man. He was experiencing shame and guilt all because of his own sin. As we come to the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we see Jesus was betrayed. We see Jesus was threatened. We see Jesus became a wanted man. We see Jesus experiencing shame and guilt, but it wasn't because of his sin. It was because Jesus took the sin of his people upon himself. What Jesus endured was far worse. It was far worse betrayal, far worse shame, far worse exile and pain than David would ever experience. And Jesus did it for us. And because Jesus experienced all of that, we never have to. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see the Lord Jesus and all that he has accomplished for us, it should melt our hearts as we as we see his love and grace. And it should also strengthen our hope and our faith and our trust, even in the midst of difficult things. If the Lord Jesus went through all that he did, as he endured the darkest of the dark days, and he did it for us, then we can trust that the Lord will be at work in our lives for his glory and also for our good. That motivates us and empowers us to trust him and to follow him in faithful obedience, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances we face. Samuel Rodekast was a 17th century German pastor and teacher, and he also wrote some hymns. Uh, He wrote his first hymn in 1676, and it was a very personal hymn. He wrote it for a friend of his named Gastorius, who was a man who was sick, and, and his sickness was causing him to be discouraged and distressed and even depressed. And so uh, Rodegast uh, wrote this hymn to encourage his friend Gastorius and also to exhort him, exhort him to trust the Lord, even in the midst of, of great difficulty and pain in life, to trust the Lord. And Gastorius ended up, many believe, writing the tune uh, that goes along with the hymn that Rodegast had written for him. The tune and the hymn itself became a favorite of King William of, of Prussia. It was actually played at his funeral. And it's said that Bach actually used that hymn in several of his cantatas. It's the hymn that we're going to sing in just a few minutes to close our service. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Listen to what Radagast said. Whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away and patiently I wait his day. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Though now this cup and drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, Yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. You can hear the intensity of that hymn. Many believe that it was meant to be antiphonal. That two parties would stand facing each other and sing the hymn back and forth to one another to encourage and to to remind them and to convince them of what is true. That even in the midst of the storms of life, when days are dark and circumstances are difficult, when things are not going well, that we would remember that despite our circumstances, the Lord is sovereign and He is in control. 
He is completely worthy of our trust and we are never forsaken. He is our Father in heaven and so He loves us and cares for us. And He has shown us the extent of His love and care through the life and death and resurrection of the Savior. We have every reason to trust Him and to look for His providence at work in our lives. So how is it that you handle the dark days and difficult circumstances of your life? Especially when you feel out of control. Do the circumstances of your life direct and determine how you feel and how you think and how you act? Do they direct how close you feel to the Lord? Or does the truth that the Lord God Almighty is sovereign and faithful and loving and gracious and at work in your life Cause you to trust Him even in the most difficult times of life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need Your help. As is prayed by Your people so often, we believe, help our unbelief. We trust, help our distrust. Help us, Father. Help us in whatever circumstances we find whether life is going well or whether life seems unbearable. Help us to trust you. You are certainly worthy of our trust. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your love and grace to us through the cross. We pray that you would help us to remember these things. And so we would trust you. And this week ahead, we would trust you better than we have done this week before. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.